Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. It looks like a movie set, Jeff said. It looks like the Soviets just pulled out, I added. It was only a halfway attempt at humor. A few months earlier, I traveled to a former Soviet state. I spent time in some place that obviously felt the weight of a very, very difficult period in recent history. And here, in America, the condition of the buildings and infrastructure I was looking at was eerily familiar. Jeff and I took a detour through this particular town on our way to some fly fishing. The river that flowed through the town and another nearby tributary are both regional hallmarks for trout. Well-to-do anglers from a handful of metropolitan cities only a day's drive away speak highly of the watershed's beauty and challenging fish. The area around this place is a legitimate destination. I wonder how the residents of this time-worn town think about their surroundings. Like so many Appalachian hamlets, this little village was settled and developed in the mid-19th century with great hope and vigor. A burgeoning economy, one which capitalized on timber, coal, and railroads, led to establishing municipalities such as this. People came, thrived, and inevitably enjoyed the outdoor pursuits that the region afforded them. While the three aforementioned business interests almost always harmed fish populations, the decline wasn't rapid enough to eliminate it altogether during those boom years. The cumulative effect of 150 years of hard use, however, is another story for an ecosystem. Those 150 years also took their toll on the town. New technology, ecological regulations, and greater cultural shifts might have taken time to come about. Once they did, America didn't look back, even if a once-bustling village was in the rear view. Sociologically speaking, there are many variables at play when it comes to rural poverty, and the equation is never identical, even up and down the same mountain range. For most of these places, there's one constant. There's a persistent trickle of angling interlopers. The diversity of rustic communities from Maine to Georgia might be wide, but our Subarus and graphite five-weight rods look the same up and down the East Coast. 
We come for the fish and the adventure. We even bring a little bit of traffic and economic stimulus. While the people in towns like this one certainly have their fair share of struggles, so many have persevered under difficult conditions. Institutions anglers notice, such as diners, motels, and civil services, endure. Situational fragility has hardened the resolve of small communities. Now, fly fishers are apt to do things like anthropomorphize fish populations. Then we laud them for being resilient. Rivers that have been to the environmental brink and back produce trout with seemingly greater intrinsic value. There are success stories of creeks that were once magnificent, followed by a period of hard times, and then overcame great odds. Arriving at the understanding that trout, rivers, and watersheds are part of a broader landscape helps us appreciate our experience as fly fishers, appreciating that people and towns necessarily intersect and overlap that landscape can enrich that experience. Bridges do more than provide structure for fish. Dams serve a purpose outside dictating cubic feet per second levels that facilitate dry fly action. Solitude and isolation aren't as idyllic for everyone as they are for anglers. Learning local history, spending time in a community, and having a conversation can add real depth. Depth to a fishing trip, yes, but also a depth that can impact you and others in a way that transcends trout and water. So that's a post called Life Up on the Bank, Fly Fishing in Rural Appalachia. And that is from the website, I think that was posted back in, oh goodness, March of 2018. What a different world we lived in back then. But as a really kind of interesting perspective, in my opinion, and it's certainly not something that's original to me. I'm not the first one to think about the world that is going on above and around the trout stream that you're fishing. But I was reminded of it this week. This last week, my family and I, as long with another good uh, family uh, friends that we have, we, we went out to Southern Vermont and we rented a cottage. And, and I think I've mentioned this before, uh, just real quick, a little bit of practical wisdom for some of the conceptual stuff I'm going to be talking about primarily today. But practical wisdom go ahead and rent ski chalets in the summer and in the fall and the spring for fly fishing. Uh, These cottages and houses are always, almost always, just great, comfortable lodging options. They might not be right on the river, but the bang for your buck that you get, especially if you have a number of people that are going, whether it be your family or three or four guys that are going fishing together, you're going to get a lot out of these places that are probably going to be empty when there's not snow on the mountain. So that is, I've I've said that before and I'll say it again, it's a wonderful option if you are looking to score a great deal in a relatively rural place. And where we were staying, uh, as I'll mention here, was outside of Manchester, which is, you know, of course, home to Orvis and the Battenkill and the American Museum of Fly Fishing and all sorts of other great stuff, uh, wonderful hiking in the Green Mountains and tasty food and tasty drink. But uh, it was a great to get out and to get into this uh, cabin and just enjoy some time on the mountain. But why am I talking about these two things? I'm talking about these two things because I chose this spot because the very first time I went to Manchester was to fish, to fish the Battenkill. Fish the bat and kill, go into Orvis, get some flies, see the whole operation, but fish the bat and kill. Then I went back and I fished the bat and kill, but I did some other stuff too. I checked out the neighboring 
towns. Spent some time in Manchester, which is touristy. It's quaint touristy. It's cool touristy. I like it. I've, I've recommended going to Manchester before on the podcast. It's a great place, not just for fly fishing and fly fishing history, but just kind of to go and hang out uh, with, with yourself, with family, with friends. But today, or this week, we spent time in other communities. And you see a little bit of kind of the other side. And for me, that enriches that experience. Kind of like what I was getting at in Life Up on the Bank, the post that I led this article with. So it's happened when I've gone on vacation, whether it would be Manchester area, uh, whether it be different places in Pennsylvania, Virginia, the Carolinas, Maryland, up in Maine, in New York, out in the Midwest, out West, and even in Central America. You go for a little bit of sport and activity, but you see what's going on around it and you realize that there's people that might get off their shift and drive down to the river and fish for a couple hours in the exact same place where you've been fishing for the last three days after you've spent your hard-earned money and vacation time to get there. Two very different situations, two very different circumstances, but they're both totally valid. It's just interesting, at least in my opinion, it's interesting to see kind of what's going on around you particularly if you are invested in conservation, to understand what is happening from a cultural kind of environmental standpoint, I think is incredibly uh, necessary if you are going to be invested in a local streams conservation and what goes into it. Because there might be, for example, there's a a stream that I'm aware of that has a uh, plant on it. It's a chemical plant and it's right next to it. And it is the bane of the fly fisher's existence because it has been a repeat offender regarding pollution and other detrimental impacts on the stream. But it's also the town's largest employer in a very uh, economically uh, depressed part of Appalachia. So you look at those two things. And it's not that I feel like to sustain a population, you ought to allow industry to do whatever the heck it wants the environment. That's not the answer. Similarly, I think you shouldn't shut it down just because there's going to be negative environmental impact on a stream. Now, you might say if you're given those two options, you know, the uh, a, a negatively affected stream and what that is going to impact regarding the living conditions for those workers is something that needs to be ironed out first before you can address uh, what's going on in the company. So that is to say uh, that if the stream gets hurt, then people are going to get hurt in the long run. And I completely agree, but they also probably need a paycheck. They also probably need to put food on the table. And so it's a good thing to understand when you look at those communities. So Here's a, a very uh, a personal example. Uh, I grew up living in Northern Virginia. I've talked about this before. Driving up to South Central Pennsylvania, particularly the Carlisle area, to fish uh, Yellow Breaches, Latort, and some of those surrounding streams. So when I graduated college uh, many, many years ago, uh, my wife and I said, we can go live anywhere and we can go to graduate school. And I said, oh, man. I know where we can go. There's plenty of good grad schools in South Central Pennsylvania. Let's live in Carlisle. Purely altruistic, purely for education, right? No, I wanted to fish, and fish I did. But prior to this point in time, all I knew of Carlisle was this is where Sheets is to get gas and to get food. Uh, This is a good place where you can kind of camp on the cheap. That was all I knew about it. Well, I get there, and as I'm in graduate school, I'm working in social work. So now I am in homes 
I am in uh, meetings. I am uh, all over town in different uh, governmental agencies and state programs, and I am driving every back road. So here's the positive side of that. In living in this town, I know all the other streams that are there. Like I'm not going to be disparaging towards the the marquee streams of the Cumberland Valley, but in living there, I realize although a lot of locals fish those streams, there's a lot of locals who are really in the know. And some of the the famous anglers that you can probably think of in the Cumberland Valley who are fishing these other streams. So in my mind, I built up the fishing opportunities that are the ones that make the books and the ones that make the podcasts and all that stuff. But once I get in there and I build relationships and I spend time. Really, the only kind of things that you can learn if you are boots on the ground and tires on the gravel, and you're seeing that there's so much more going on here, I'm finding new water. And some of that comes from my own exploration, but some of that comes through relationships. So again, working in in social work as a student, just living in that town, attending church in that town, doing all those things, I'm realizing the kind of the tapestry of, of this area. And there's a whole lot more that people think about in those towns than yellow breeches and Latorte and trout. There's a whole lot more. In fact, if you've ever been in that area, and this is a lot like any, you know, as I was talking about earlier with Appalachia. Now, certainly Carlisle is not this, uh, you know, completely downtrodden, depressed place. It's not that at all. It's a lovely town. Um, the place, as I was talking about, was actually in uh, Western Maryland um, in in the early part of the, the podcast. Um, you can probably put two and two together if you are from that area. But the Latorte flows through downtown Carlisle. It's channelized. It goes through these concrete, you know, uh, barriers. Then it goes into the War College, and there it goes through some kind of rough parts of town. Now, this is rough with a real lowercase r, but there's people who are sitting there doing their normal life, just trying to get by. You know, flicking the ashes of their cigarette into Latorte, and they don't care that it is one of the premier historic legacy trout streams of the East Coast. They don't care. That's the last thing that they that they. They, um, uh, think about. So consequently, why would they care about protecting it? Why would they care about what wild brown trout mean? Why would they care about what Vince Marinero and Charlie Fox and the Cumberland Valley Chapter of Trout Unlimited and the Fly Fishers Club of Harrisburg have done and the important work that has come out of that regarding trout behavior and trout genetics and dry fly fishing? That That's the last thing on their mind. That might be the most important thing to you. It might be the most important thing to me. But once you realize there's a whole lot going on there, then it appreciate it raises your appreciation for the fact that it's not easy enough to just slap a label on a tree saying, here are the new special regs, you better abide by it. Now, I'm not saying that people should break the law. I'm just saying that there's a lot of socioeconomic and anthropological factors that go into something like that. And if you spend time in a place like that, then you can appreciate it. Now, hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm being condescending or I'm talking down about anyone or about any way of life or any part of the country, because I'm simply saying that we just need to be aware of that. I think sometimes as anglers, we can be very singularly focused. We can be myopic when it comes to, you know, we are here to catch fish. What a privilege it is for you townsperson to live in the banks of this. Uh, and, and certainly you are thankful that I'm here because of the injection of uh, economic stimulus that I am bringing to your your town. So certainly don't scoff at the fact that I've parked on the side of your gravel road or that I might be uh, you know walking through your backyard. Like I'm, I'm the privileged guest here. Now, I'm not saying that that is what we are saying explicitly. But I've certainly ran into fly fishers that have that mentality, hikers that have the mentality, hunters that have that mentality. 
And as wonderful as outdoor opportunities are, we are in a really unique situation in our country. And that is the fact that we have as much public lands that we do, and we have the access opportunities that we do. Uh, from, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time in Europe, and I haven't spent a lot of time in Central America, but it's just really not the same situation. If you want to uh, have have outdoor opportunity, then you've got to own land or know somebody that owns land. There's not a whole lot of public land opportunities that are out there. And so consequently, that means you, you'll be rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people, including the neighbors of, of where you are fishing, where you're hunting, where you're hiking. So this, hopefully you can follow my train of thought. And, and it, it's this, uh, we have the privilege and the blessing to be able to engage in so many outdoor activities, specifically fly fishing in places where people live. We treat those oftentimes as kind of sacred, special places. And of course, I know that you might not think that in the sense like this is holy ground or this is uh, hallowed waters or anything like that, but they are storied waters. They are special waters. And they are, are the kind of places where we'd say, I'd rather go fish here than the 15 streams I have to drive over to get there because of what this means from a historical standpoint or from a productivity standpoint. But there's people that live there that don't have that same experience. And those are that 90 9% that is run-of-the-mill folk and that 1% that is fly fishers. The 1% that is fly fishers know that stream much more intimately and know that area that is much more intimately. And so they might have a completely different approach, a completely different perspective. They are the brutes on the ground folks when it comes to the conservation issues as well as the fishing. And then the other 99% of folks, they might care about the fact that they have a valued uh, commodity in their town or adjacent to their town when it meet, when it comes to a fishery. They might not care. In fact, they might even be a little bit antagonistic towards the fact that you're there. But if you show up and you take some time and you understand what's going on, and you patronize the local diner, and you have a conversation with someone, as opposed to you know going to Bob Evans or uh, simply you know packing your lunch from home. If you go into that diner and you have a conversation, I think that adds the background scenery. One of the the, the books I've read recently is uh, uh, Traverse Corner. I'm drawing a total blank on the the author's name, um, but uh, it's because it's on my bookshelf downstairs. But there is total maybe. 10%, less 8% of the story is set on the water. The rest is knowing the people of the town. And that's what drives the story. That's what adds the seasoning to when you're on the water. It, it gets you to that point. And I can say with great certainty and great surety, my time spent in South Central Pennsylvania, my time spent in the, the mountains of Virginia, and my time now in New England, um, close to the coast and to the mountains, it is increased by the stories of people that might not be avid anglers, but their life has woven in and out of the the, the coast here and what it, what it means for recreation and conservation and economics and tourism and all of those things. They have as an equal impact on their lives uh, in a way where it kind of puts the striper population and me driving over to the beach and fly fishing for striper puts it in a little bit different perspective. And so 
as I'm driving there, I'm noticing things. I'm noticing the house that is is foreclosed on. I'm noticing the new house that's being built. I'm noticing the diner that really looks like it's been through a lot, but is thriving, and the new one, and why it's not uh, it's not thriving. Why no one's going to it. Uh, I understand why traffic is a nuisance, and I understand maybe the back way to get there. And all of those things I get, not because I read a guidebook, not because I was on a message board, but just from living in and amongst a place that has a lot more going for it than fly fishing. And so that would be my encouragement to you. Uh, Whether you are visiting a place like I was reading about early on in the podcast that is really struggling from an economic standpoint, uh, or whether you're fishing in the creme de la creme, you know, upper crust part of the of the world where you're staying in a lodge, um, you know, take a step outside of the trout stream. Take a step outside of that cultivated, uh, very very prim and proper uh, kind of fly fishing that we we might get the chance to engage in, and figure out what's going on on the other side of the stream and up on the bank. And that is where you, first of all, are going to gain a new sense of appreciation in my opinion, for what you're doing. And secondly, you might have an enriched experience as you step in the water and as you you know, have that margin time of breakfast, of dinner, of staying in a hotel where you, you might find out there's a whole lot going on that is broader and deeper than uh, simply the pool where you're going to catch the most fish. Quick administrative reminder. Firstly, there is going to be another accusation podcast in a couple of weeks. So if you have any questions, comments, or accusations, send them over to Matthew at castingacross.com, or you can always leave a comment at the bottom of any uh, article or the show notes for a podcast on castingacross.com. Secondly, ratings and reviews on iTunes. They are always appreciated. I will never say no to a rating or to a review on iTunes. So if you have a few minutes, and again, I know that your time is valuable and I know that uh, that matters a lot, um, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. It gets it into more eyes, which means it gets it into more ears, which means it builds the community and uh, again, promotes kind of the stuff that we talk about here on castingacross.com. Monday's article on casting across got both articles this week got a little bit of buzz, which is awesome. Uh, Monday's is called Music While Fishing. The Washington State Department of Natural Resources, which I don't follow on Twitter, but somehow got in front of me and I'm thankful uh, it did. They posted a hilarious picture um, talking about a playlist for your weekend hike, and it was completely empty, which is my kind of experience. I've only encountered people listening to little portable speakers on the hiking trail of you know a handful of times. It is by far the most obnoxious thing that I can think of. Um, when my kids are in the woods, I let them make noise, but when they start doing animal calls and being loud, what I always tell them is, listen, if you were in the woods and you were trying to enjoy nature, I'm not saying you should be dead silent. That's not the uh, covenant we agree to when we participate in outdoor activities. But do you want to hear something unnaturally obnoxious? Absolutely not. So the few times where I've been summiting mountains and there's somebody up there playing music, it just gets on my nerves. I just want to get down as soon as possible. If I was a less moral person, I'd like to see how far I could throw those little portable speakers off the top of a mountain. But that'd be littering, and so I wouldn't do that. But uh, I write about that in the context of fishing. That being said, there is one caveat where I think music outdoors is totally appropriate. So check it out. See if you agree with me or disagree with me. The next article, which, uh, again, was kind of talking about the same thing I talked about today, uh, was called Trout, Trout Everywhere, Nor Any Rod to Fish. 
trout, trout everywhere, nor any rod to fish. And uh, talks about going to a place where the fly fishing is great and where you enjoy the fly fishing. And it's it's an awesome fly fishing place, but you choose not to fly fish. And why is that? Well, I talk about that here in the article. Trout, trout everywhere, nor any rod to fish. This week's recommendation on the podcast, I'm going to say it again. I've said it before. Visit the uh, Orvis store in Manchester, Vermont. It's just a cool spot. It is just well done, and the people that are in the fly fishing section know they're fly fishing. Uh, the trout pond is about as much fun as a child can have. Bring your quarters, uh, but there's almost always some trout, uh, trout food pellets on the ground where you can you know, shake them into your hand and have the kids feed it, uh, feed the fish. And my kids and my friends' kids, they just had an absolute blast. But the uh, store is great. Uh, and again, like I've, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, how... Um, the first time I went there, I thought for sure, as I was asking questions about the Batonco, they tried to sell me something, but they pulled out a little Xerox copy map of the river, and the guy behind the desk got out a pen and pointed things out. And that's the kind of stuff that makes me say, hey, this is like real. This is legitimate. I've been to tiny mom and pop fly shops that won't give you information unless you spend money. And here's Orvis, the big dog, the one that always gets all the criticism. And the fly shop employees not only know what they're talking about when it comes to their equipment, but when it comes to uh, the local fishing. And that's just the fly shop. There's so much more there. There's the dog beds and there's the, uh, you know, the, the, the lodge style uh, decor. All that stuff is there. Uh, men's clothing, women's clothing. Actually, my wallet, my wife got me at uh, the Orvis store probably about nine years ago there. Um, but you know what? If that's not your bag, that's fine. Just don't yuck someone's yum. I think it's great. I worked for Orvis, so there's a little bit of a warm spot there, but I also enjoy a lot of their products. But this spot in particular, uh, it's got a lot of flavor. If you feel like there's a lot of cookie cutter Orvis stores out there, there are, but this one's great. So if you find yourself in the area, definitely stop in. And then they have the big clearance barn next door, which did not go into this time around. But if you want a pair of patch Madras shorts, I'm sure you can find some in your size at the clearance outlet. So I'm going to put Orvis.com in the show notes of this podcast page, but I'm sure you can find your way there without my assistance at all. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, place, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.